you have your Bibles, please turn to the book of Ephesians, chapter 3. Ephesians chapter 3, the Apostle Paul, in writing to the church in Ephesus um, to encourage them and also to set forth the gospel, uh, to let them know some of the truths that they hadn't actually been aware of, perhaps, uh, or not with the clarity that he wrote to them to give them. And so here we read this epistle. We'll begin at the first verse. We're going to really focus in on uh, beginning at verse 7. Um, and but uh, let's go ahead and start at verse one of Ephesians chapter three. For this reason, I, Paul, the prisoner of Christ Jesus, for you Gentiles, if indeed you have heard of the dispensation of the grace of God, which was given to me for you, how that by revelation he made known to me the mystery, as I have briefly written already, by which when you read, you may understand my knowledge in the mystery of Christ, which in other ages was not made known to the sons of men as it has now been revealed by the Spirit to his holy apostles and prophets, that the Gentiles should be fellow heirs of the same body and partakers of his promise in Christ through the gospel, of which I became a minister according to the gift of the grace of God given to me by the effective working of his power. To me, who am less than the least of all the saints, this grace was given that I should preach among the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ, and to make all see what is the fellowship of the mystery, which from the beginning of the ages has been hidden in God, who created all things through Jesus Christ, to the intent that now the manifold wisdom of God might be made known by the church to the principalities and powers in the heavenly places according to the eternal purpose which he accomplished in Christ Jesus our Lord, in whom we have boldness and access with confidence through faith in him. Therefore, I ask that you do not lose heart at my tribulations for you, which is your glory. Amen. Gracious God and Heavenly Father, we ask you to bless us now, give us understanding in your word, guide us and direct us, and apply it to our hearts and lives by your Holy Spirit, so that we wouldn't just be hearers of your word, but by your grace, we would become effectual doers of your word, that we would live according to what you have said in your word. And we pray you guide us now, and I pray that the words of my mouth and the meditations of all our hearts would be acceptable in your sight through Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior. Amen. Amen. So we come to this passage as uh, Paul has been setting forth, and you know, we saw last week when he says, uh, for this reason, I, Paul, the prisoner of Christ Jesus, for you Gentiles. And the question comes up, what reason? So we went back and looked briefly at chapter two and saw the great truths that Paul had set forth there, primarily the second part of the chapter, where he points out that, God's plan has been throughout eternity to bring all nations to faith in his son. You know, we actually celebrated that in Psalm 67. We saw that, you know, the word nations uh, in Hebrew I've mentioned before is goyim, and it means Gentiles. And so if you're not Jewish, then you're a Gentile. And that's really what uh, we're talking about, that God would bring the nations to himself in Christ without them having to become members of 
uh, or partakers of, or, of the uh, Mosaic practices that were given to Israel. Israel was separated from the nations for the sake of the Messiah who was to come. And they were given uh, ordinances and they were given ceremonies and certain things temporarily. Because if you remember, it started with Abraham long before the Mosaic administration. And they were given commands. And those commands actually were, were fulfilled. That is, the ceremonial laws were, were fulfilled by Christ when he came because they were shadows. They were pictures of what the Messiah was going to do. And so once he had done it, then the shadows were no longer necessary because we now have the reality. That's why it's such a shame, you know, because the ceremonies, all the complicated ceremonies of the Mosaic administration that uh, this, the apostles, Peter in particular, refers to as a burden that neither we nor our, bother, our fathers could bear, um, he said, now you want to put those on the Gentiles. That's in Acts chapter 15 at the Council of Jerusalem. And the apostle said, no, the Gentiles do not have to basically become Jewish in order to be saved. They don't have to be circumcised. And they don't have to keep the ceremonial law of Moses. As far as the application of the gospel, you know, some would say, well, what about the moral law? Well, of course, you know, Christ saved us from our sins. So, you know, the Ten Commandments. Uh, speak to us as a rule of life as Christians. They can't condemn us because Christ died for our sins, but they can clearly show us how to live. So the law has been set aside and fulfilled. The uh, moral force of the Ten Commandments is still in play. For believers, it's a rule of life. It can't hurt us, but you know you don't want to be out committing adultery and murdering and stealing and all the stuff it says. So when someone says, well, we're not under the law, it's like we're not under the ceremonies, we're not under the law, it's anything that can condemn us, any aspect of law, we're under grace, but the Ten Commandments do speak to us as image bearers of God, and there are things we need to be doing, uh, because if someone thinks they're not under the law and it's okay for them to break the Ten Commandments, that's not a person you want to allow in your house or be around your family, because it's like, well, you know, if you're going to break those commandments, we can't be friends if you're going to steal, kill, and lie, and blaspheme, and set up idolatry, and you know, covet things, and all that stuff. So Paul is saying here that the Gentiles have been brought in through the gospel. When they come to saving faith in Christ, they're part of God's people, as he said in chapter two. Uh, that. As 19, he says, now, therefore, you, that is, you Gentile believers, are no longer strangers and foreigners, but fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, having been built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Jesus Christ himself being the chief cornerstone. This is chapter 2, verse 21 now. In whom the whole building being fitted together. Remember, we talked about the Greek word there. It means harmoniously fitted together grows into a holy temple in the Lord, in whom you also are being built together for a dwelling place of God in the Spirit. So that's the, for this reason, that is, that's the reason. So Paul says, now I'm writing to you, and he said, I uh, wanted to tell you more about this mystery, in verse 6, uh, that the Gentiles should be fellow heirs of the promise and partakers of the promise in Christ through the gospel, not through compliance with Mosaic ceremonies, but through faith in Jesus Christ. And then in verse 7, he says, of which I became a minister. And the word there, minister, is actually the word, we get the word deacon. It's diakonos. Uh, 
in Greek, that word can mean servant, and that literally it means waiter, one who waits on tables is what the word diakonos originally meant. And Paul says, I became a minister, a deacon in that sense, or a, a waiter, one who serves, according, note, note what he says, um, according to the gift of the grace of God given to me by the effecting, effective working of his power. This is verse 7. And so as we begin to consider these verses, these next few verses, 7 through 13, the first thing we find out, I think that's rather outstanding, is that God's grace to Paul, and that's what he's talking about here, uh, turned him into a servant. You know, uh, you hear a lot of talk today about, you know, and it's it's correct in context, you know, that God has exalted us. You know, some of them, like in the neo-apostolic movement, the idea is, uh, as one person said, in critiquing that, they said, uh, I thought we were supposed to be the Lord's servants, uh, not his replacements. <laughs> uh, some of you know, they went around, you know, name it and claim it, and they declare all this stuff. And saw one yesterday, someone declared that the Lord was, or that God was Lord. And I thought, okay, I think your intentions are probably, well, without being too judgmental, good. Yeah, you're trying to say something there. But you don't declare God to be Lord, okay? You don't declare Jesus to be Lord. He is Lord, all right? You can praise him. If you want to declare it to men, fine. But the idea of this word of power stuff, I'm going to say it and make it so. I can create reality now. It's like, no, you can't. Only God can do that. You can speak his word and trust him to work. But here Paul says, you know, I became a servant, God's grace made me a minister, a servant, one who waits on tables. That is uh, not one who does his own. Now, Paul knows the extent of the exaltation that he has in Christ. God has made us kings and priests, it says in Revelation chapter 1. But here he says, grace made me a servant, of which I became a minister, literally a servant, diakonos, according to the gift of the grace of God given to me by the effective working of his power. So Paul has no problem being a servant because he says it's God's power that works in me when I become a servant. And that's a pretty awesome experience. God's power made him a servant effectively. So it wasn't just in word only, but it was, as the scripture says, in deed and in truth. So Paul was transformed and became something he hadn't been before. He became a servant to the gospel, and it was by God's power that this happened. And then he, he recounts in verse 8 who he is and what he was. He says, to me, who am less than the least of all saints. Note that. Paul didn't think that because he was a servant and had been given this mission, it was awesome, that that somehow made him better than other Christians. He says, I'm the least of all saints. Now, he articulates that. Uh, somewhat in 1 Corinthians 15.9. This reflects that that idea. In 1 Corinthians 15.9, when Paul talked about that Christ had called him to be an apostle, and Paul, Paul had to defend his apostolic calling because there were some in Corinth that were trying to uh, discredit Paul because they wanted to overthrow what he was teaching. And so they went after the legitimacy of Paul's call as an apostle. And so in 1 Corinthians, he sets that forth. But he says... Uh, for I am the least of the apostles. Paul didn't consider himself to be better than anyone else. But though God had worked in him mightily, he says, I'm the least of the apostles who am not worthy to be called an apostle. Paul knew himself. And so he, he said, I, I'm unworthy of this, but nevertheless, God has called me. I'm not worthy to be called an apostle. He says, the reason why is because I persecuted the church of God. Paul remembered back 
the sins that he'd committed before he was converted. And it was painful for him. He thought back because he says elsewhere that when God's uh, people, Christians, were put to death, Paul gave his consent to it. And he persecuted them from city to city and delivered them over to the authorities. And Christians were killed because of Paul. And he remembered later their anguished looks and cries that he had no problem doing. His conscience was so dead and his heart was so hard in wickedness, all in, in pharisaical ceremony and formality. Uh, he went along with it. But then he says this. He reminds himself of this in 1 Corinthians 15, 9. But then he goes on and says, but by the grace of God, I am what I am. So Paul recognizes, I have a past that, yes, I am ashamed of. But I'm not going to let my past control me because Christ called me out of that. He met me on the road to Damascus. He changed my life. He forgave my sin. He made me a new creation, a new creature. My sins have been forgiven. And so he says this, by the grace of God, I am what I am. And his grace toward me was not in vain. Paul talks about grace here as favor, but also as power. God's grace came to Paul in an effective way. By the grace of God, I am what I am. And his grace toward me was not in vain. But I labored more abundantly than they all. That is the other apostles. He said, he's not saying they didn't labor. He's just saying the Lord used me to accomplish a whole lot more. Uh, yet not I, but the grace of God, which was in me. So Paul says, I'm not boasting. This is nothing you know, where I'm better than others. I'm just saying God used me in ways that he didn't use the other apostles. But it really wasn't me doing it. It was God's grace effectively working through me. There's many other passages where Paul reflects on his former life prior to his conversion. But he doesn't let that get in his way. You know, I've mentioned uh, before that, and it's important for us to remember this, some people are controlled by their past. They can't get away from it. You know, we have people you know, have been in trouble with the law and it just seems they can't get away from that. It keeps following them around. Or they've had, you know, bad experiences with people and that just controls who they are now. And that's really not what the God's grace has for us. Christians ought to be, and in one sense, we definitely are. Christians are people who are controlled by their future. And that's what you need to remember. You have a future in Christ. So if you're here today and you go, oh, well, Pastor, thanks for bringing all this stuff up. Now I remember all the sins of my youth and all those foolish, wicked things I did, people I hurt, things I shouldn't have done, words I shouldn't have said, actions, et cetera, et cetera. Well, beloved, don't let it hold you back, okay? If you're in Christ, your sins are forgiven. Uh, you're, you were dead in trespasses and sins, but now you're alive in Christ and you're dead to the world. So, yeah, we have every one of us, if you're saved, you got saved, you know, sometime after you were you know, two minutes old. Uh, you probably have things you're ashamed of, even those who became Christians early in life. It's like, oh, I wished I would have followed the Lord as I ought to have. I professed faith in Christ, but man, I lived a poor Christian life until the Lord got a hold of me. Well, praise God, he got a hold of you. And if you're not sure where you stand today, call on him and trust him and repent. We just read Jeremiah. What did he do? God sent prophets time and again to Israel saying, repent. And he said the problem with them is they wouldn't listen. So if you're here today and you need to repent, well, do it. Don't be like Israel, okay? Um, recognize that. Paul was called by God, and the grace was effective. When a preacher calls you, you may or may not respond, okay? My words will go and bounce off your eardrums, okay? The hope is that God's word, the call of the gospel, 
the offer of forgiveness of sins and eternal life through Jesus Christ, that the Holy Spirit will take that, those words and send them into your heart and your very inner person, your spirit, and cause you to believe them and trust in them. We speak to men's ears. The Holy Spirit speaks to men's hearts. And when he does that, it's effective. We use the word effectual, meaning it's effective. It's transformative. And so this is what Paul is saying happened to him. He said, I who am the least of all saints there in verse eight, he knew who he was, but then he doesn't stop. This grace was given. It's Ephesians 3, 8. This grace was given. He said, I'm the most unworthy person. Elsewhere, he calls himself the chief of sinners. He says, of whom I am, and Christ came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am chief. Well, he was chief of sinners. That is, Paul didn't think he was better than anyone else. He recognized that. But he also recognized that Christ came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am chief. So he put it in a good context. But he says, to, to me, verse 8, who am the least of all the saints, his grace was given. And it wasn't ineffective. It wasn't idle. No, that I should preach among the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ. And literally, that's the, the word riches there. It's wealth, the, the, the beauty, the, 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 the valuable things. You know, you know, what is wealth? You know, in some countries that they use uh, their money. You know, if you come into a store or something here in the United States, if you have foreign money, they generally won't accept it. All right. And that's why when we try to come with our, our phony baloney good works before God, think we can buy his favorites. Like, mm, that's the wrong currency. That doesn't, that doesn't matter before God. God looks at the righteousness of Christ, the wealth of Christ that's given to us. That's the currency of heaven. And so Paul says, I want to preach the unsearchable riches of Christ. Note that the unsearchable wealth, all the beauty, all the, the gems, all the the spiritual gold and, and just the precious things of Christ that belong to him. I want to preach that to let the Gentiles, the nations know just who this Lord Jesus Christ that we preach, who he really is, that he is God and man in one person. He's the son of God throughout all eternity and took to himself a human nature, came, lived a righteous life, never sinned. He was conceived in the womb of the Virgin Mary, entered humanity in a unique way, did not partake of original sin, lived a sinless life as a man, then died on the cross for our sins. He took this, all the sins of his elect ones upon him. They were imputed to him, and he died in our place. He shouldn't have died because death comes about by sin, and yet he was sinless. But our sins were placed to his account, and so he became subject to death. But having taken them all away, he's risen from the dead. Death had no more claim on him after he paid for our sins because he had no sin himself. So Jesus Christ is risen from the dead, never to die again, exalted to the right hand of God in heaven, coming again on the last day of history. And God now tells us that through faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, our sins can be forgiven. We can have new life. Things can change. Whatever we're bogged down or stuck in, whatever it is that's torturing us in our consciences, we can take it to Jesus and we can say, Lord, have mercy upon me intercede for me. The Bible says Christ is our great high priest. We have not yet begun to explore the depths of the riches of who Jesus is and what he has done for us in relationship to God, the Father and the Holy Spirit, the triune God himself. 
and all the uh, the blessings of eternity. Because God himself is infinite. He is unsearchable. We're never going to exhaust the riches of his glory. As we measure time, you know, if you wanted to say, you know, 2,000 trillion years away or however you want to say it, think of the biggest, no, you can just use the term infinity, but it's like, that's a kind of an abstract concept for us because none of us are infinite or eternal. God is, and you will never exhaust the glory and the goodness and the grace of God. And when we're in glory with the Lord, our capacity, I believe the scripture is fairly clear on this, our capacity to receive God's revelation of himself is going to increase. And yet you're never, you're going, in other words, you're going to know a whole lot more about God than you ever thought of right now. And it's never going to get old. It's never going to become boring. It's going to be an eternal amazement and fascination at the love of God. And that's what Paul's talking about. I want to preach among the Gentiles. Note the term that he uses. The unsearchable riches of Christ. Now, what he means by that, and the Greek word is very clear. It's a big, long word. It's really hard to pronounce. It's omnikiksniaston. Okay. Uh, that's the word unsearchable. I tried saying it there. I'm not going to try it again. Okay. The English word is unsearchable. doesn't mean you can't begin to search it, obviously, because that's what he's doing here. It means you can't get to the end of it because it's infinite. It is unsearchable in the sense that you can't find it out conclusively. You know, we use the term comprehensive knowledge. You know, comp we, we apprehend knowledge. That means you come in contact with it. Comprehensive knowledge means you've got a complete circle around the whole thing. You know everything there is about it. You know, if you if you can say the ABCs in English, all right, you start with A, end with Z or Z if you're Canadian. Um, you can say the ABCs. You can say, I have a comprehensive knowledge of the alphabet, at least as far as that goes, all right, of the English alphabet. You can say the whole thing. You have comprehensive knowledge. But if I was to say, could you write out, uh, you know, using uh, standard mathematic numbers, uh, write out pi for me, okay? You go, uh, we can't do that. Why not? Well, because the way it is, it, it never ends. Well, what, what does that measure? That measures a circumference to the radius or circumference um, all the way around. And then the radius uh, and trying to figure out from the point, how do you get to it? To try to do that mathematically, there's no end to it. There's an aspect of infinity stamped on the creation, you know, where we can't figure it out. You look into outer space. We have theories, but it's like, where does it end? You know, the idea is, well, if it goes X amount of, you know, millions, billions, trillions, whatever the word is beyond that, of miles, uh, you say, okay, and then what? It stops? Okay, then what's two inches beyond that? Oh, I don't know. Okay. God created an infinity. Outer space is created. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. All right. That's a created infinity made by the uncreated infinity himself, God. And that's why it says in scripture, the heavens of the heavens cannot contain him. His being transcends the physical creation. And yet when we think of that, it's like, well, that's kind of an aspect of eternity. Yes, there is an infinite aspect of it. Our minds can't fully comprehend the creation in regard to outer space. You know, that's why when we look at the Hubble telescope or the other telescopes now that they have, and they look into the very depths of space, they always find things that nobody even thought were there. And yet we know the more powerful the, the telescopes, 
the more we're going to see. It just it never ends. God made all that, and he knows all those things. And it's no effort for him to know that because he willed for them to exist. He brought them into existence. That's just the creation. That's not saying the creator. So if that's what we can see and learn and know, the creation itself, this current creation is infinite as far as us and our ability to search it out. How much more the one who made it? You see, you're never going to get bored with God's grace and his goodness and his love. You're going to find out more and more how much he loves you and his plan and purpose for your life. So this is what Paul is saying. I want to preach among the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ. Now, that doesn't mean that Paul was going to be preaching and or did preach abstract theology of some sort uh, to the Gentiles. He preached the basics of the gospel, that Christ died for our sins and rose again from the dead. And God offers us eternal life now through faith in him. If we'll trust him, call upon his name, he will be our God and we will be his children. Our sins will be forgiven. Paul wanted to preach that. That's what grace called Paul to do. And then he says in verse 9, And to make all see what is the fellowship of the mystery, which from the beginning of the ages has been hidden in God, who created all things through Jesus Christ. So he says, my call was to preach the unsearchable riches of Christ and to make all see what is the fellowship of the mystery. He went to, that is to bring them to a point where they can see this and recognize it. Everyone that he came in contact with, all the Gentiles, all the nations, which from the beginning of the ages has been hidden in God. Then he points out who created all things through Jesus Christ. Paul says, I want to preach this. This is my purpose. This is what God called me to do. Uh, to, to let people know what these glorious truths are. The fellowship of the mystery, that is all believers hold these things in common. That's what the word fellowship means. And then verse 10, to the intent that now, present time, so he talks about we're going to, this infinite glory and goodness and unsearchable riches of Christ that we'll be exploring and even now begin, to the intent that now the manifold wisdom of God might be made known by the church. Now, there's two ways to take this, but then we will see the objects of that or the uh, indirect objects are to the principalities and powers in the heavenly places by the churches displayed to the principalities and powers. Note the manifold wisdom of God. And someone's like, well, how do we, we, we preach to angels or something like that? Well, it does say uh, in Peter that the angels take interest in, in first Peter one 12, it says, uh, which things the angels desire to look into. So, yeah, the angels have an interest. Uh, they're, we can use this term. They're curious about what's going on among mankind. How does the church do this? By being the object of God's mercies and saving grace. Transformed lives. Remember Jesus said in Luke 15, 10, Likewise, I say unto you that there is joy in the presence of the angels of God over one sinner that repenteth, or one sinner who repents. There's joy among the angels in heaven. They look in, they see it, they know it. And when a sinner repents, when a person who has life has been characterized by sin, when they're born again, they trust in Jesus, they repent of their sins. That is, they turn from them and say, I want to do what God wants. I want my life to honor him. When that works or is worked in a person's heart, the angels rejoice because they love God. We're talking about the angels that never fell, okay? Uh, they love God. They, they love seeing God's people rejoice. Jesus said in regard to, to little children, but it's also true, I believe, of all Christians, 
He said, take heed that you do not despise one of these little ones. For I say to you that in heaven, their angels always see the face of my father who is in heaven. For the son of man has come to save that which was lost. So Christ was talking about little ones that believe in him. He says, don't despise them. Despise can mean to ignore. It can be to, you know, be mean to them or just, you know, to despise them, just to not like them. Recognize God's at work in their lives. But Jesus said, don't fall into the, the trap of either ignoring or despising little children. Because he says, because they they have great value before God. And then he says for uh, that in heaven, their angels always see the face of my father who is in heaven. And so, you know, do we have guardian angels, as some have said? Yeah, apparently we do. It also says in Hebrews uh, that God has set forth the angels to be ministering spirits to minister, minister to those who will be heirs of salvation. That takes it beyond just children. It means all of us have uh, heavenly you know, armies watching over us. Okay, God is at work in your life. You don't see it. And according to Scripture, we don't address them in prayer or talk to them as some try to teach. But you do have guardian angels and they watch out for you they, they watch over you and when they see god's grace become effective in your life and you go i don't want to sin anymore i want to do what's right before god the angels rejoice okay uh they have a, an interest in seeing you progress in christ and that's what he's saying that by the church this is true of all god's people collectively the manifold wisdom of god you know when um Jude wrote at the end of his epistle, I'm always amazed at these beautiful verses, when he says in Jude 24, referencing God's wisdom, but he says first, now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling, that means from falling away, really, and to present you faultless before the presence of his glory with exceeding joy. So I'm at the last day. Now to him who is able, that is, he's, he's willing, and he's also able to keep you from stumbling and to present you faultless before the presence of his glory with exceeding joy to God, our Savior. And then he says this, who alone is wise. God knows every aspect of your life, all the providential circumstances that you are in or are going to be in or that you have been in. And he knows how to guide you so that ultimately you will be presented before him faultless in the presence of his glory. I've said this many times before, God knows how to get you where you're sitting right now in church. He knows how to get you into his presence in heaven. That's what he's doing. You wonder like, well, there's a new heaven and a new earth. How do I get there? I'm not sure if it exists yet. I'm not sure if it's been created. Scripture speaks of a new creation. It's already begun and spiritually. Christ initiated it physically by his resurrection. We experience it spiritually when we're born again. How do I get from here to the new heavens and the new earth? I'm kind of at a loss how to do that. It's okay. Jesus knows how to get you there. And that's what he's committed himself to do. He's going to present you. And because his wisdom takes in all the circumstances of life, even your foolishness, and your sin at times. That's why he promises that if you get out of the way, he'll bring you back in, either by giving you wisdom or chastening you until you desire wisdom, all right? But he says, to God our Savior, who alone is wise, be glory and majesty, dominion and power, both now and forever. Amen. 
God, our Savior, who alone is wise. This is what Paul says. And to make all see what is the fellowship of the mystery. And to let them know that the wisdom of God, to the intent, verse 10, that now the manifold wisdom of God might be made known by the church, that is through our salvation and sanctification, to the principalities and powers in the heavenly places. And that can include even the demonic forces, some have pointed out, because those terms seem to be used in some places to refer to the uh, darker realms, but definitely referring to the angelic uh, realms of the angels, the elect angels, as Paul calls them in First Timothy, according to the eternal purpose which he accomplished in Christ Jesus our Lord. So he says, this is all according to God's predestinated sovereign plan, in whom, verse 12, in whom we have boldness and access with confidence through faith in him. So he says, because of God's eternal purpose, which he accomplished in Christ, that is to save us from our sins, Note, he says, we have boldness and access with confidence through faith in him. It's not confidence in ourselves. Paul mentioned his self-confidence. He said, I, I know what I was. But he says, but by the grace of God, I am what I am. But our confidence in Christ. In Hebrews chapter 10, it says, therefore, ha brethren, having boldness. This is Hebrews 10 at verse 19. Therefore, brethren, having boldness to enter the holiest, that is to go into God's presence by prayer. To go to enter the holiest by the blood of Jesus, based on what Jesus did at Calvary, by a new and living way which he consecrated for us through the veil, not the fleshly or the physical veil of the temple he's referencing here, but he says through the veil, that is his flesh, because his flesh is what was torn and broken for us. And having a high priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith. That is faith in him. Having our hearts sprinkled from an evil conscience. Talking about regeneration and baptism is a picture of that here. Having our hearts sprinkled from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering. And then he tells us why we can do this. For he who promised is faithful. That's what faith is. He who promised is faithful. You can trust him. You know, so your confidence, your boldness, it's because of who Jesus is. Remember Queen Esther, when Mordecai told her, you have to go in and you have to talk to uh, the king. You have to go in and tell him what's going on or we're going to all die because of the activities of Haman and in his machinations. And she said, if I go into his presence when he's seated in the throne room, anyone that goes in there, if he sees me in... He's holding a golden scepter as king. If he does not extend that scepter to whoever it is, the guards immediately will kill that person, take them out and put them to death. Because no one was allowed to enter into the uh, inner court of the Persian kings unless they were invited. And if they came in uninvited, it could be a death sentence unless the king himself extended that golden scepter. And Esther because she knew her people needed her to do that, with boldness, she went in. And you say, wait a minute, I think she was probably afraid. She understood what was at stake. She understood the one to whom she was approaching. I think there probably was some fear in her heart. But it was with boldness that she went in. So, beloved, you can go before God with fear and trepidation. You can go before God with doubts. 
You can go before God with disgust at yourself or even discouragement, but you can still do that and come in boldly. She came in. You know why she came in? She was trusting in something. Well, she was trusting in the Lord, clearly. But there was one other thing. As the wife of the king, she was trusting in his love. I have a few. It says he really did love her. We're told that. You know, Artaxerxes loved her, and um, she was, you know, just awesome in his sight. She was the queen. And when she came in, she was staking everything on the fact <clears throat> that what he had said to her was true. So she came boldly. And if you know the story, what did the king do? He saw her. You know he smiled when he saw her. She was absolutely beautiful, and he loved her. She walked in. He saw her. He immediately held out the golden scepter and said, Come, tell me what, what do you, what's on your mind. He was so happy to see her. And if you know the rest of the story, things worked out. It was good. Beloved, that's what you need to learn to do. You can venture on your Savior's love. You say, I have, I've sinned against God. I've messed up, man. I've got things that are bad in my life. I've done things. I've said things. I've hurt people. Go to Jesus. He's not going to throw you away. Venture on his love. You've got his word, his promise. You know, John 3, 16. If you can't remember anything else, remember that and then go to Jesus. Okay? Venture on his love. That's what the writer of the Hebrews is saying. We have boldness because he who promised is faithful. Jesus said, all those that the Father have given to me shall come to me. And he that comes to me, I will in no way cast out. He's not going to throw you away if you come to him. In Hebrews chapter 4, verse 14, it says, Seeing then that we have a great high priest, that is one who stands between us and God. Speaking of Jesus. Seeing then that we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession, looking to him. For we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but was in all points tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us therefore come, and then we have that word again, let us therefore come boldly to the throne of grace, that we may obtain mercy and find grace to help in time of need. It's Hebrews chapter 4, verse 14 through 16. So Paul wanted us to know that God has a plan and a purpose in whom we have boldness and access with confidence through faith in him. And then finally in verse 13, Paul then makes an application in its current circumstances. He says, therefore I ask that you do not lose heart at my tribulations for you. Paul said, yeah, I have trouble because I've preached to the Gentiles, but don't get discouraged by that. Don't blame yourself for anything. He said, which is your glory? He said, this whole thing is being worked out. It's to your glory. Trust in Christ. Paul said, I'm okay. Whatever happens to me, I belong to the Lord. I'm okay. And you have been given such blessing and privilege as God's people. Paul says, yeah, I've caught some flack. I've been persecuted because of it. I'm okay with that. That's I'm, We're doing God's plan. His eternal purpose is being worked out. Don't you lose heart because you're hearing that I'm having a rough time. Very important uh, information. There. You know, when we, we hear of other believers suffering, we need to pray for them. Our hearts are moved by it. But Paul told the Ephesians, when you hear this about, don't get discouraged. Keep doing what God wants you to do. And don't become afraid because he'll be with you in all circumstances as you meditate and learn those unsearchable riches of Christ. May God give us grace to have boldness and confidence because of who Jesus is, what he has done and what he has promised us. And we know it's true. We can have boldness because he who promised is faithful. Let us pray.